and uh, we'll uh, move on now to uh, uh, Dr. Gandhi, who's returned from her uh, trip to the CIFAR director's meeting. Uh, Dr. Gandhi, as you know already and have heard, is a professor of medicine at UCSF, runs the uh, AIDS program there, and has uh, made contributions across the board uh, with um, HIV and has played a major role in our response to coronaviruses as well. Today, she's going to talk to us um, and uh, give us some state-of-the-art antiretroviral cases to ponder. So, Monica. Thank you. Um, first slide, please. And this is going to be um, lots of questions for us all. So this will be a uh, please get ready to do a lot of voting uh, because I've put in a lot of audience response questions because many of these slides that um, hopefully we're putting up right now um, are, um, oh, how do I, I share my own slides, then you're going to, every time I have a question, well, I see. Okay, we can do that. You'll, uh, every time I have a question, then we'll go back to the other ones. Um, okay, so yes, I'm going to, um, there'll be lots of questions because there's so many things that isn't clear, aren't clear in um, HIV medicine. So I hope that we'll all be weighing in. Um, okay, so to talk about a couple of um, cases, um, oh, I have no disclosures. Um, this is a 52 year old man who, was diagnosed with HIV 30 years ago. He was on EZT3TC, then EZT3TC Nevirapine, then TDF-FTC efavirenz, um, and uh, uh, first as separated and then a single pill combination. He had off and on problems with adherence and viral load detectability, and he emerged a K65R, M184V, K103N, and a D67N mutation. He was switched to BID, Raltegravir, Atravirine, Terunavir, Ritonavir, the TRIO regimen in 2008, and then simplified to Dolotegavir, Duravirine, Terunavir, Kobe once daily in 2018. He still has variable adherence, no new mutations from above, um, and he wants a change from three pills a day. He said that it's just too much. He's housed, he's food secure, and he wants to simplify. So what is the regimen that you would choose for this patient? Uh, would you choose BIC-TAF FTC? Would you choose Darunavir, Kobe, Dolotegravir? Would you choose uh, the one pill Dolotegravir, Volpivirine? Would you choose Cabotegravir, Volpivirine, Intramuscular? Or would you try the one pill Darunavir, Kobe, TAF, or FTC? Please vote. Okay, um, so it looks like a lot of you chose the Darunavir, Kobe, Dolotegravir, along with uh, BICTAF, FTC. Those were tied um, together. So great. So let's go over some of that data then. So the patient was started by your colleague on BICTAF, FTC. Um, now, remember, this patient does have a K65R, an M184V, a K67N, um, but your colleague said, oh, you can't get INST mutations on Bictegravir. So is that true? And um, in rare cases, what are we seeing as an emerging signature mutation for Bictegravir? Is it N155H, E92Q, the Q148H? Um, the L74I or the R263K. Please vote. Okay. 
So Q148, um, which is a very important mutation actually for dolotegravir, is in this case um, not what seems to be emerging, it's more the R263K, but let's talk about that data. So, um, you know, really Bictegravir does have a high genetic barrier to resistance and, um, and where we have seen the emergence of resistance would be in a patient like this, uh, would be a patient who has underlying K65R, other mutations that are really making the TAF-FTC um, barely able to work and we just have BIC alone and then we have the setting of cord here. So what did we know until recently? The SWITCH studies, the NAIVE studies, did not emerge Bictegravir resistance. So high genetic barrier, at least in passaging it through in vitro, um, we saw uh, emergence of different mutations, but it's really in the clinical studies when you have case reports that can tell you what's coming out really in clinical failures that gives you a hint of what's most likely to cause Bictegravir resistance. There was one patient that, here's a case report, who had um, a Q148H and a G140S that was transmitted at baseline and wasn't detected in one of the studies and um, did, however, retain virologic suppression uh, for a prolonged period of time and likely going um, with the Q148 and the G140S. So it doesn't look like that's going to make Bictegravir fail. But what have we seen in case reports? Well, there's really been just four case reports that are coming out um, very recently. There was one um, that was um, shown at HIV Glasgow, not yet published, who was um, a patient in Germany who had a high viral loaded diagnosis, a low CD4 count, developed unfortunately PML and was put on BIC TAF FTC, but did have poor adherence, and after a while developed an M184V and continued on the medication even with poor adherence and ultimately developed an R263K and failed Bictegravir. There was a second patient who, uh, this is an antiviral research, same sort of story actually, uh, Bictaf FTC started with a high viral load after two months. Um, uh, uh, poor adherence again, uh, um, developed an M184V, continued unfortunately on the medication and then developed an R263K and failed. We had a patient at our clinic, Ward 86, who had the exact same story, poor adherence, first of all, did an M184V, then an R263K with high virologic failure. And then finally, a case report in OFID, um, that's a 51-year-old man, cryptococcal meningitis, poor adherence again, first developed M184V and then R263K. So I would not, I would not um, start a patient who has a K65R and M184V and other TAMs on Bictegravir TAF FTC with a known history of poor adherence. Um, so let's think about other options. So the patient was switchly, quickly switched off BICTAF FTC when we realized these failures can occur and onto dolotegravir ropivirine. And he called two weeks later and he said, well, he likes it, but he's taking out his usual adherence pattern of one to two missed doses a week. So what do you think? Um, uh, uh, would you continue this? Well, the SWORD trials excluded participants with prior virologic failure or any mutations, but do you use dolotegravir ropivirine with NRT? Um, well, no, I adhere to the inclusion criteria. Yes, NRTA mutations will not affect this regimen. Yes, but I assess adherence first. I have not, but I will think about it. Please vote.
So um, great. So this has gotten people thinking because in a way, right, NRTI mutations are really irrelevant to using dolotegavir and rolpivirine. They neither one are an NRTI. And I think it can be used, but the question is what many of you also said, I assess adherence first, because sometimes NRTI mutations are a marker for adherence in dolotegavir rolpivirine, at least rolpivirine part of it does not have a high genetic barrier to resistance. So in this case, you did think about adherence. It made you nervous to have um, the patient on a rolpivirine uh, uh, regimen and, um, and you decided to switch him. And this is the data that shows that um, really the SWORD 1 and 2 trials that showed us that rolpivirine um, dolotegravir worked um, as a switch regimen. Remember, this was a uh, switch a, a strategy when patients already had virologic suppression. It was adults on stable ART. They didn't have any previous virologic failure. They actually couldn't have previous mutations of any sort. Um, and uh, they had to be virologically suppressed for six months prior to switch and then switched. And of course, this is a highly successful regimen, but um, this was in the context of um, no mutations and likely high adherence. So you're increasingly using this with patients with NRTI or PI or even K103N mutations if they're now adherent and they've changed um, what could have happened that led to those mutations. But this patient uh, does report problems with adherence. And so you do switch to Darunivir, Kobe, TAF, FDC, single pill combination. Now, the Darunivir, Kobe, TAF, FDC combination was approved on uh, 2018. And it is um, a regimen that is for either ART naives or virologically suppressed, at least that's how it was studied. Um, but it does have, Darunavir has the highest genetic barrier resistance of the ARVs. It is a first, um, really this is the first PI-based single pill combination. It has the right amount of TAF in it, 10 milligrams, not 25 milligrams. And the Emerald study really showed us that we could use it in this context. So let's talk about the Emerald study. The Emerald study was a study that um, they, uh, the, again, um, not exactly this patient because uh, these patients, were, these participants were virologically suppressed on a boosted PI regimen, but they were randomized to staying on that boosted PI regimen or, or um, going on to, on, on to Darunavir, Kobe, FCAF. And the Inclusion criteria is that they had to be stable and um, their viral loads were essentially suppressed up till then, kind of like um, our patient, um, though he's, um, he has more problems with adherence. That was probably reported in this study. But importantly, the question of underlying NRTI resistance was raised because that's the patient that we have in front of us. And so virologic um, suppression was maintained out to um, 96 week data now that we have um, at 91%. Um, and uh, it looked uh, good um, out to 96 weeks. But what about the underlying NRTI mutations? Well, anyone who failed on um, the single pill combination did not develop, as we've come to expect, to Runivir associated mutations, though one failed with an M184B. But in those who had prior virologic failure, and genome archive data at least. 38% um, had emtricitabine RAMs, mostly the M184V mutation, 4% had a K65R, and 21% had um, thymine analog mutations. 
And despite that, despite at least these gene, um, these um, these uh, proviral uh, mutations, all the patients uh, participants in this trial maintained virologic suppression. So that was one possibility, though this is quite a bit of resistance. And many of you voted for Dolotegavir and a boosted Darunavir regimen. So my question is, was there ever a trial performed to look at this combination of Dolotegavir plus boosted Darunavir as two drug therapy? No, but as, it, as we talked about here, it made sense this would work. Yes, it's called the DUO trial. Yes, it's called the Foxtrot study. Yes, the Duala study. Or yes, the Doppelganger study. Please vote. And essentially, most of us said no, but it makes sense this would work, as many of you had voted for. But actually, there is a trial uh, called the Duallis study. So the Duallis study was published. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the Duallis study was published um, last year in OFID. And this was essentially that very question. Someone like our patient who has underlying resistance um, to NRTIs um, and who ended up getting switched to dolotegavir and boosted darunavir after virologic suppression, because remember he was tired of taking multiple pills. So it was a phase 2b study. Um, they had to be virologically suppressed for six months and no darunavir or entity mutations, but that would fit the criteria for this patient. And actually it had role in, in low enrollment. So there's 130 in each arm, but the dualis regimen, the darunavir um, boosted with dolotegravir looked very good. Same as keeping on three drug regimen. And actually the lipids were better with, without, uh, with the tenofovir regimen. So you try to put the patient on what many of us said, dolotegravir and darunavir Kobe, but he points out that doesn't actually feel that different from dolotegravir, darunavir, kobe, daraverine, and he wants one pill once a day. So you go ahead and you try it. You try dolotegravir, wilkerine, but you counsel him on the importance of adherence. So he does fine for two months. Um, and uh, then by the third month, he reports that he really was doing um, more of a off and on pattern of adherence. And unfortunately he has emerged both in uh, an E138K, as, which is a ropivirine-associated mutation, and two instinct mutations, a Q148H and an N155. So he now has resistance to ropivirine, insties, and NRTIs. So our experiment did not, uh, uh, did not, was not successful. So what regimen would you use next? Would you use Fostemsevir plus darunavir Kobe plus Teravirine? Daravirine plus darunavir Kobe is an E138K. Fostemsevir plus darunavir Kobe, Fostemsevir plus Daravirine, or Fostemsevir plus Ibiluzumab. Okay, so most of you, some of you um, 
actually will give him Dravarine, Darunavir Kobe with the ultimate promise that he would, you know, really has to stay on this because we have developed a lot of resistance and the majority said Fostem Severe, Darunavir Kobe, Dravarine wasn't, weren't going to give him a two drug regimen. So I agree with that actually, um, but let's talk about Fostemsevir for a minute. So really Fostemsevir was approved on July 2nd, 2020 for heavily treatment experienced patients. And it was this type of um, patient that had still remaining ARV classes. In this case, the patient should have two, Duravarine and Darunavacobi, um, because no PI resistance, and it was just at E138K, um, but can't, uh, but wanted to add on um, to that failing regimen a new agent. This is our attach only attachment inhibitor that we have. And essentially there was an advantage over adding Fostemsevir 600 BID to the failing regimen um, with the optimized background regimen in terms of uh, maintenance of virologic suppression. So, or virologic reduction. So um, you are still curious though, just want to make sure and, and, and confirm that Duravarine susceptibility is maintained in the setting of the E138K. So you actually do um, a uh, uh, phenotype and confirm um, that that isn't actually a Duravarine associated mutation, and that's shown here. And he really, uh, I think the Fostemsever BID would be the safest thing to do, and certainly if there is no um, possibility of ever missing a drug again, we could try Dravarine, Turinavir, Kobe, like some of you said. So we'll leave that, leave that hanging. Okay, so the next patient, uh, the next question to you is, have you started a patient on injectables yet? So yes, no, still figuring it out or waiter, waiting for even longer acting ARTs. This is an exciting time too. So no, not yet 46%, but 21% of you have. And a few are actually waiting for some of the agents that Dr. Benson talked about. So um, let's talk about a case that I, um, that a couple of cases here at Ward 86, these are real patients. So 49 year old man, history of HIV since 2003. And he was started on a Favlin's TDF-FTC at the time, but he developed his uh, also, um, of uh, elevated viral load and had a K103N in 2008. So that was when Raltegravir came out and he was switched to Raltegravir TDF-FTC and then to the single pill combination of elvitegravir cobi TDF-FTC in 2012 and then dolotegravir vacavir 3TC when it became available as a single pill in 2014. He has been virologically suppressed since, but he says, now I want to, I read about these injectables, please give me the shots, I, I want them, but I don't want them every four weeks, I'm really busy, um, and I want to come in as little as I can to get the injections. So no other past medical history, no other um, meds, um, and he's married and his husband is not on PrEP. So... Would you give this patient injectable cavitinib? Well, no, because he has a history of a K103N. Yes, but I want to do it every four weeks. Number three, yes, but every eight weeks. Four, yes, every four weeks for a while, then I'll be comfortable switching. Or five, I have great beds, have great bedside manner and say how hard it is to take one pill once a day for Pete's sake.
Okay, so um, no, 18% has a history of K103, yes, every four weeks. Um, some, because he's asked, will do eight weeks. Um, and then maybe first try four weeks, then eight weeks, that's the majority opinion. Or the other said, um, no, let's just keep at our oral. Okay, so, um, so, you know, what is happening with the, why do people want injectable ARV so much? I mean, there's no doubt, obviously, that oral antiretroviral therapy has been revolutionary, um, but it is hard to link and stay in care. There have been um, problems with adherence in multiple communities, youth, marginal housing, mental illness, cognitive impairment, food insecurity, substance use, um, adverse effects. There's just pill fatigue and the stigma of the daily pill and a reminder that I have HIV. And that really for this patient was his, um, was his desire to switch to an injectable agent. So multiple reasons why people would wanna be injectables. And I really think that before we got them, we were thinking of injectables for highly adherent as one category and then as poorly adherence is another, though we don't have a lot of data in how to use the injectables in the latter population. And barriers for highly adherent may be circumvented by quick in and out shot clinics or pharmacies, mobile vans, maybe self-administration of the shots at home, um, or um, and certainly having oral bridges at home. So let's remind ourselves of the inclusion criteria of, um, of the pivotal studies for long-acting CAB, lopivirine, uh, to remind ourselves if this is a patient that we feel comfortable trying to go for eight weeks. Now, remember, the Eclair study showed us that it can't be given every 12 weeks. In fact, even though it was a low-risk population, um, HIV-negative um, men, there were actually some uh, some uh, seroconversions in that. So it really can't be given every 12. So let's think about the eight versus four. Well, the two injectable um, uh, long cavitegravir repivirine studies, the FLARE study was, I remember it because you have a FLARE for new things, was it the naive study. And the inclusion criteria were naive. A K103 was fine actually, because um, it's repivirine as the agent and that works perfectly well against a K103 and it's a second generation NRTI. And then um, participants had to be suppressed on dolotegravir BTC for 20 weeks. Then there was an oral lead-in of cabropivirine um, orally, and then cabotegravir uh, 600 milligrams, ropivirine 900 milligrams as a loading dose, followed by maintenance of 400 and 600 every four weeks. The ATLAS study similarly required virologic suppression prior to entry. These were patients who were experienced so experienced Atlas map um, and had um, no virologic failure in the past, was suppressed at least for six months on their prior regimen. No INSTI or NNRTI mutations except for K103N, which was fine. Then again, an oral lead-in and then the initiation dose and the maintenance dose. I will remind you in the FLARE study that there was 121 participants who were um, able to go to direct to inject. So your patient does fit the inclusion criteria of the ATLAS study with even with the K103N. So how would you give the shots now? One every four weeks, two every eight weeks, still every four weeks for a while, then I'd be comfortable switching to eight weeks or four, can we discuss cabotegravir resistance seen at eight weeks to make sure we're comfortable.
So still 32% would go four weeks for a while, then eight weeks, but we want to discuss cabotidovir resistance. So let's do that now. Um, so there are really three major studies that um, have shown us what's going on with cabotidovir resistance. The flare that we talked about, ATLAS, but also ATLAS 2M, and that is the one where patients participants went from every four weeks to every eight weeks. And then HPTN 083 has relevance here because it was cabotegravir given every eight weeks for prevention, but the resistance patterns will help us understand what could happen in treatment. Uh, this is the data from the flare at 124 weeks. And um, we have data from IAS at 124 weeks at and we have data to 96 weeks in Lancet. And really there's a maintenance of virologic suppression, but it's 80% by 124 weeks. And there were some that discontinued with adverse effects about 14.8%. And there were four failures um, that occurred between 96 uh, and one additional, so five um, that occurred between 96 and 124 weeks. And these were the five failures shown here um, and you can see that there was failure with um, um, the development of INSTE resistance. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, so you can see that there was some development of INSTE resistance, G140, GQ148, GQ148 again, and an N155, N263K. So there was development of resistance in four out of the five failures in the integrase gene. And then if we look to ATLAS, we have the 96-week data from HIV Glasgow last year, and there was um, non-inferiority of the cabotegravir-pinopivirine every four weeks to continuing three-drug ARVs, and there were three failures in this every four-week study. And those three failures added to our list of the five failures that we had from FLARE, there was a development in one of an INSTE mutation, N155. Um, actually, two of those three had baseline recovering rams off profile of interest. And then here is the Atlas 2M study. This is cabotegravir and recovering every eight weeks after the four-week phase. So from the four-week phase, continuing out um, after 96 weeks, 100 weeks to eight weeks, uh, giving it every eight weeks. And here are um, here are the results from Croy and uh, um, in uh, the 96 weeks data, this was the 48 week in the Lancet. And you can see that there were virologic failures, but in the Q8 week arm, there was actually eight additional failures out of the, uh, actually um, nine additional virologic failures from the two that were seen in the Q4 week arm. And so adding in these nine additional virologic failures in our table, we can see that at that eight week, we did get significantly more failures and um, there was development in five out of nine of INSTE mutations. So this leads me to the next question, given that what we've just talked about is what do you think the ranking is for genetic barrier to resistance for the INSTEs, lowest to highest? Is it elvitegravir, then roltegravir, then cabotegravir, then um, dolotegravir, or is it roltegravir at the lowest genetic, then elvitegravir, then cabotegravir, then dolotegravir? Or do you kind of group them into roltegravir, elvitegravir, and then cab, bic, dolotegravir? Or do you think that cab has a higher genetic barrier resistance than bic and dolotegravir? Or I don't like this eight-week burst of resistance in the treatment trials. 
as well. So um, I do think that um, most people said either one or two, if you add those up together. And I think it is hard to tell between them. I think Alvatagover probably has a lower genetic barrier resistance from the initial treatment trials. But I agree that Cabotegravir has a lower genetic barrier resistance than Bic Dolotegravir because in the trials themselves, Bic and Dolotegravir rarely had the emergence of resistance. It was really in case reports or um, in, in, at least in the case of Dolotegravir with Viking, where really had been used on a very difficult background where there was a lot of resistance. So a Cabotegravir does have seemingly a lower genetic barrier to resistance than those two others. And um, this is the HBTN083 study that also showed us some of this. This was the two, of course, um, Cabotegravir um, uh, PrEP trials, but one was in me uh, men who have sex with men and transgender women, which was 083, and 084 was in cisgender women. But we got the results of the resistance genotyping for the 16 failures in HBTN083. And in that study, um, this was, of course, the design was either I am Cabotegravir every eight weeks versus daily TDFFTC. And the design of that study, um, uh, or the results of that study as published in The Lancet, you can see that there were 16 failures. And of, of those 16, five developed virologic resistance, um, uh, the development of virologic resistance with INSTE mutations. And the INSTE mutations are shown here on the right but quite a bit of development, at least in those five out of the 16 failures. And it really didn't seem to matter. Uh, one was undetected HIV at baseline. One um, was during the oral, two were oral, during the oral lead-in and two were actually despite on-time injections. So the eight weeks does seem to give us a little less leeway in terms of the development of resistance. So that's both in the treatment trials and in the prevention trials. So now this is our final table put together that HBTN 083 at eight weeks and Atlas at eight weeks had more resistance develop, at least in the, in the slower way that it developed with the giving it every four weeks in Flare and Atlas. So you go over all this data with the patient, you discuss giving the injection every four weeks with some hesitation to give every eight weeks. And he says, okay, but tell me, since I really want to eventually get the shot every eight weeks, any risk factors more associated with all this resistance you're trying to scare me about? So that is the question. What are the risk factors for the development of cabotegravir resistance in the combined phase three treatment trials? Was it one, being late for injections? Was it two, proviral recovering resistance mutations? Is it three, HIV clade B? Is it four, HIV clade A16? Or is it five having a body mass index of greater than 30? Or is it answers one, two, and five being late proviral resistance and body mass index or two, four, and five? Resistance A1 and body mass index greater than 30. So um, actually the majority of you said one, two, and five, which was being late for injections 
and proviral resistance mutations and having a high BMI. It's actually two, four, and five, interestingly, because we saw that at least um, in Atlas 2M and in HBTN083, even being on time for injections every eight weeks, there was still emergency. And so where do we get this uh, conclusion? This was a nice study that was just published a couple of months ago in AIDS that looked at the FLARE, ATLAS, and ATLAS 2M studies at week 48 and explored predictors of developing HIV virologic failure to long-acting cabotegravir recovery. It was a multivariable analysis, and really what it showed us is that um, having a repivirine RAM, uh, uh, and those were actually on proviral and they had at least two, having HIV subtype A6A1 and or, a, which is not the dominant clade found in the United States, which is B, and or a BMI of at least 30 was associated with increased virologic failure. So these really, um, you know, it is rare to develop it, but these are the risk factors. So your patient's BMI is 24. The decision made is to start every four weeks with reevaluation as more data evolves when everyone feels comfortable going to every eight weeks. And he agrees, but he does say that um, he would like to go to the eight weeks. And I think it's something that of course can be tried. And um, these, are, uh, these are not high numbers, but it's important to remember some of our risk factors. So there is no doubt that we were waiting for these injectable antiretrovirals in some cases to try to use in patients who have challenges with taking daily ART. One problem is we do not have a good way to know that um, and know how to use them because they were really studied in the way that I just described in patients who had longstanding virologic suppression on oral therapy. And, um, and so it's hard to know what to do with a patient like this. This is a 39-year-old man with HIV. This is my patient who I actually met in an Uber. Um, and he was diagnosed with acute HIV in 2009 at pool testing in, in our municipal STD clinic. His viral load was 500,000. His CD4 was 491. He had an acute um, retroviral syndrome when he was diagnosed. He was started on TDF-FTC, atazanavir, ritonavir, but never suppressed. He fell out of care and then moved to Florida when he was put on a single pill combination, elvitegavir cobi TDF-FTC in 2014. He moved back to San Francisco in 2015. I met him in 2016, but he was having difficulties with adherence due to, due to methamphetamine. On 10-22-2016, he did have a viral load of 12,000, CD4 of 153, and his genotype showed an M184V and an N155 mutation in the INSD he had been on Elvitegravir. He was put on darunavir cobi tdf ftc and then the single pull combination when it came out but he really couldn't take oral ART. He then went back to Florida, couldn't find care that he felt was um, appropriate for him. He came back to this provider in 2021. Now we have a CD4 count of 18 and a viral load of over 500. He states he cannot take oral meds. He just can't remember. He uses methamphetamine. He feels it's very stigmatizing and um, he just cannot bring himself to take an oral med. So he still has the N155H, the M184V. We worked him up for a number of OIs because he had such a low T cell count and we're really at the end of our rope. So would you put this patient on long acting cabotegravir recovery? Number one, yes, perfect candidate, high viral load, low CD4, one insti mutation, long history of non-adherence. 
Number two, are you crazy? Number three, um, no, ibuluzumab and maybe something else. Four, nuance is the key to decision making. He has no other options. He won't take oral. He's young and he is gravely at risk with the CD4 combination. Okay, so, you know, I think like, um, like me, you recognize that we don't have options. And this is a patient who he is saying he will not take oral medications and coming in two week, every two weeks for an IV medication, ibuluzumab without anything else because he would have to take an oral isn't possible. And so we are going to do it and um, we did it. And um, so we started them actually just on June 8th, 2021 on a loading dose of intramuscular cab and intramuscular pivoting. We came in, this is a true story, came in for a second dose on July 16th. He's been extremely careful about coming in and we drew his pre-second dose viral load and gave his dose that day. So what do you think the viral load was before the second dose? We started with an exact viral load of 516,258. Was it 492,000? Was it 49,000? Was it 4,900? Was it 49 or was it undetectable? Less than 30. Okay, so most of you said 46%. Um, some, just a few thought we didn't get anywhere. And then 10% were sanguine enough to think that he became undetectable. So that is actually what happened. He did become undetectable. His HIV viral load was 30 after the first loading dose. Um, he's now on a sixth dose of IM captegravirobiberine. Actually, he just got Yesterday, we've had three viral loads less than 30. CD4 count is up. He called his mother from clinic on the day of the first viral load. He hugged me. Um, his fatigue is much improved. He's back to Uber. This is a don't try at home case, but um, this is a true case. So we are have we do have a pilot program for long-acting ART for poorly adherent uh, patients at Ward 86 only when there is no other option. Reminder that the inclusion criteria showed virologic suppression of at least 16 weeks on the oral regimen first, no history of virologic failure. Only K103N um, uh, is allowed, no um, INST mutations and oral cabotegravir for 28 days is the lead-in. We um, have allowed occasionally, um, and we have about four patients who fit this criteria now, does not need to be virologically suppressed or take orals before, we'll go direct to inject. We don't allow ropivirine mutations, but we will allow one insti mutation that's non-defining of cabotegravir. Um, and we require strict demonstration of being able to come to clinic prior to starting this. And we review these patients and follow them very closely bi-weekly. 
And this patient, at least so far, is doing very well. I'll end with um, a, just a few discussion points on medications that we have already been discussed in the investigational talk by Dr. Benson, but lenacapavir um, is really this first of its kind novel HIV capsid inhibitor. And first of its kind that it really helps with essentially after you've already gone through virus production and are assembling the capsid. And um, we have data uh, from COI 2021 in a phase two, three study, because we're really looking at treatment experience patients here in heavily art experienced people with HIV. These, this is the Capella trial. And remember the design of this trial, this really was very multi-drug resistant um, individuals. And uh, because they had um, uh, uh, only essentially the option of having, uh, they had actually less than two ARV remaining. And then they were randomized to taking um, oral uh, lenacapavir just as a loading dose on days one, two, and eight, and then randomized to staying on that optimized background regimen and getting subcutaneous lenacapavir every six months. So this is the 26-week data that is shown um, uh, here that you can see that there was actually um, not in the optimized background regimen there was not good virologic suppression rates, but in the left side, you can see that we did achieve virologic suppression in this small study, uh, less than 50, less than 200 of 81 and 89%. And of course, what mattered was having at least one active agent in the background regimen. Having one active agent was associated with 86% suppression, uh, two was 81% suppression, and three, zero, um, having nothing in the background was 67% suppression, very small patient. and. Um, Two out of 72 of the patients, as Dr. Benson discussed, had emergent capsid mutations conferring high-level lenacapavir resistance, um, but both did resuppress, um, but uh, M66I substantially impairs viral replication. So, um, and then the final drug to talk about, which we've already discussed this morning, so I'll just remind you of what it is. It's a, a, a NRTTI. Uh, a nucleoside reverse transcriptase translocation inhibitor. It's really also the first in its uh, class. It's very high potency, half-life up to 128 hours. Once per year dosing is feasible. And Connie showed you that data from this morning about the implant and how it will be, can be given once a week and also once a month. And um, on March 15th, Gilead and Merck announced an agreement to jointly develop and commercialize long-acting combination of lenacapavir and islatravir. Um, they just announced, uh, they announced their collaboration in March, but just last week announced that the first um, treatment trial that will launch will be with lenacapavir once a week and islatravir once a week. So it will be a once weekly regimen, two drugs. And so we will, um, that's exciting and we'll see how that is. And I will end there and take any comments. Hey, thanks very much, Monica. Great uh, series of cases to, to mull through and kind of a uh, good um, uh, example and, and demonstration about why um, there's still a lot of thought involved in what we do every day. A uh, number of questions here related to uh, the um, logistics of injectables. Um, any likelihood people are going to be able to get that part of it reimbursed and um, accessed along those lines? Yes, so we also could not get it reimbursed bizarrely on private insurance. Um, 
we do not have patients at Ward 86 in our clinic on private insurance. We just have Medi-Cal and Medicare. And it isn't Medicare. Uh, we, it's very hard to get it on Medicare. And so we literally can only get it on Medicaid, which is Medi-Cal uh, in the state of California. And it's specifically Part D. So it's not, I mean, it's, it's, it's not on ADAP yet. Um, this is, you know, something that just started in May. Uh, this is when it was available. And uh, it's, we have about 14 patients on it now, but I completely understand um, what people are, uh, several comments that it's hard to get. And um, I will say that we, if Doug McCormick, if you happen to be in San Francisco, I, we are happy to share how we can get it on insurance. But again, it has to be public insurance at the moment. Uh, what about the higher maintenance dose? Did you use that or the standard maintenance dose? Um, so used the loading dose 600, 900 um, at, you know, for the first dose and then went to the 400, 600 as the maintenance dose every four weeks. And uh, what about the um, M50I mutation? Any um, issues with NCD activity? Not to, I'm not able to comment on that, not to my knowledge. Um, it certainly didn't emerge with a, um, uh, with a, um, with the cabotegravir, you know, what, what, what we likely are not going to use this in patients with NCD resistance regularly. Again, I'm telling you a pretty rare thing that we did in a patient that I thought we had no options for, um, who had an N155, but what, um, was significant for us is if you look at the cabotegravir emergent resistance mutations, usually people did not break through with it one and 155. It was usually multiple mutations. So we were hoping that we have activity and at least, you know, fingers crossed for the last six months we have. Good. Okay. How about oral lead-ins uh, for the patients you started? So we did not do oral lead-ins. And in fact, I, in a poorly adherent patient population, if you're going to do an oral lead-in, I wouldn't use cabotegravir uh, or and that was a very conscious decision because they're two separate pills. Um, and also um, the rapivirine actually does have a low genetic barrier to resistance. The advantage of using injectables in a poorly adherent patient population is you know when you're giving the, mm -hmm. the injectable. And so um, if we, we've chosen to go direct to inject um, in these rare patients and even in our patients who had fill, fill fatigue and fit the inclusion criteria of the studies, but we have abandoned the, the um, oral lead-in. Great, okay. So I think we've gone through the questions. Uh, we're just about two minutes ahead, but that's good. And uh, why don't I turn it back over to you so you can introduce Roger.